Amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 27. That's going to be the passage we're going to be at today. So Acts 27, we're almost through the entire book of Acts. We've been on it for about, I don't know, close to 11 months, maybe 10 months now. And uh, it has been a fascinating study, um, working our way through chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And I don't know if you're like me, but if, if uh, I'm like one of those guys on the football team or the basketball team, like, put me in, coach. I want to be in the game. Um, I'm never really good enough to play in the game, but I always wanted to be in the game. And uh, as I read through the book of Acts, my heart longs uh, to be that kind of a believer, a believer that is fully engaged in, in just trusting God and, and living for his mission. So I've been blessed by our study and our time in the book of Acts, and uh, we're coming up to the end of it, but we're actually at, a, at an exciting chapter. We're in chapter 27 in, the, in, this, uh, in this exciting book, and I would say it's like the crescendo. A lot of great things, a lot of fascinating things are going to happen in this, in this particular chapter. But let me preface it by saying a lot of dramatic and traumatic things actually occur as well. Um, So we're going to be in this particular chapter the entire time. We're going to work our way through 44 different verses. Um, But the title of this message is uh, Four Truth Anchors for Hopeless Storms. I would say there are, there's a verse that Jesus spoke, actually he made a statement to his disciples, the people that have dedicated their lives to following Jesus. Listen to this statement and tell, if you, tell me if you remember it. He's with, he's with these guys and he says, look, um, as you are in this world, there is no doubt you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. As long as you're breathing and living in this world, you're going to have trouble. But do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. You guys know what I'm talking about when he made that statement? Every, a lot of people know that. It's a powerful statement. It's like a, like a T-shirt statement. People put that on coffee mugs, right? I mean, yes, Jesus overcome the world. But can we be real? I mean, just flat out real honest with each other uh, this morning. I want this to be a very safe place to ha- ask yourself questions of the heart. When you're in difficult times, some of you guys are there right now. You're in a difficult season of life. You're in a, a very difficult storm has, has kind of taken over. When you hear a verse like that, there's something inside of you that says, yeah, yeah, Jesus has overcome the world, but I'm not really seeing Jesus right now in my life. I mean, it's, can we say that? Can we, can we admit that? Is it okay to say that as a pastor? Is it okay to say that there's moments in my life where I struggle with, Jesus, you said you've overcome the world, but, but how come you're not helping me in this situation I'm in right now? Maybe you're in a hopeless storm, right? You're in a hopeless season where the situation you're in doesn't look like it's ever going to change. If anything, what you think is going to happen in the future actually looks far worse than your past, Like, I'm afraid of what the future holds for me because of what I'm experiencing right now. There are people in this room right now. If I walk down every single row in this room, I promise you, people are struggling with that very question. You know, what is is God? Where is God in my life right now? In fact, in in Acts chapter 27, we're going to find the apostle Paul, the quote-unquote superhero of the faith, like so many people say. He's struggling with the same thing. Where is God in this? And he begins to become afraid. It's interesting because we're going to see the apostle Paul struggling with that here in just a minute. But the reality is we're not, what we're going to see, Paul is loading, he's getting ready to board a boat and head to Italy. And the reason why he's doing that is because as he was under custody and he said, look, I want to appeal before Caesar of Rome. I'm a Roman citizen. I want you to send me to Rome. Don't put me on trial in Jerusalem. Send me to Rome. 
And so as a result of that request, now we pick up in chapter 27 where Paul is being shipped to Rome, supposedly. And, and the reason why Paul wanted to do this, this is such a good idea in a lot of ways. Paul knew that if he could get the gospel to Rome, which was at that time the most powerful nation in the world, then the gospel message, this good news that he's sharing with the world is spread around the globe. Everybody in the world will hear about Jesus as long as he can get to Rome. That's his plan. However, when he gets on the boat, his whole plan begins to disintegrate around him. He's in a lot of trouble in this chapter. And some of you all have, know what I'm talking about. Like you have, you've been with us through this journey. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been here, but you, you really, you, you want to be a follower of Jesus. You want to obey God, and you, you've taken steps in your life to be dramatic and, and recklessly of following Christ and just living for him and him alone, right? That's the kind of life you've been choosing to live, and all of a sudden, now it just seems like you're in a problem after a problem. You've got bad news after bad news, and you're wondering, okay, God, I don't, this doesn't make any sense. It's not what I was expecting to experience. And so Paul loads this boat, and his dreams of getting the gospel to Rome kind of appear to be just nothing more than a fairy tale, like a pipe dream. His dreams are beginning to disintegrate. And so it's in this particular uh, chapter that we're going to see how he responds to that. But I really want to, uh, before I even get into the, the, the actual crux of the whole passage, I want to kind of explain um, what we're going to experience here. Um, there, I'm going to explain the structure of this entire message. Um, there are four irrevocable truths that I want to highlight to you uh, from this passage about God. Who is God? And when we see who God is, something transforms in our hearts. So the fear and the anxiety and the frustration that we might be experiencing in the storms that you're currently going through, or perhaps the storm that you will go through in the future, um, that, that re- you're going to be able to experience a transformation of your heart when you see who God really is, these irrevocable promises. And that's what I want to highlight. So we're going to talk about who God is in the passage, step back, we're going to read the whole, we're going to read through the chapter, and I'm going to periodically step out of the story and highlight who God is, and then I'm going to talk about how this should impact your life as a result of what we see about God. Now, as I said earlier, if we walk down every row, um, I wouldn't be shocked if, every, if there's at least one person in every row that's struggling with fear, struggling with um, anxiety. That's a very serious problem, and we know that. We face that, right? I mean, some of you faced it in the past, and you're facing it now because of the storm that you're going through. And, you would, and the, the question you're going to have to wrestle with as we work our way through this text is this. Is your fear greater than your faith? Now, remember, this is, I want this to be a, a, a safe place to have this conversation with your own heart. Is, it's okay to let your guard down for just a minute. Honestly evaluate, are, is fear greater than your faith in God? It's not that you don't believe that God can help you. It's that you're really questioning if God actually will help you. And that is exactly what Satan has always done from the beginning. Remember in the Garden of Eden, where, where Satan was tempting, he says, look, is, did God really say that you're going to die if you, drink, if you eat of that fruit? Did God really say this? It's the same thing that's happening in our lives right now. And what I believe from this passage God's going to do in a lot of your hearts this morning is God's going to flip that equation around, and he's going to strengthen your faith. Your faith is going to be bigger because when you see who God is, fear becomes very small compared to the, the bigness of your God. That's what I believe God's going to do as we read this passage of Scripture. So if you don't mind, I would love to pray that the Holy Spirit does this very thing. We need Jesus to show up in the room as we read his word. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. 
So let's just pray and ask God to meet with us this morning in a glorious way as he already has begun. Lord, we are coming to you humbly. We recognize, Lord, that there is nothing in our lives that we need more, nobody in our lives that we need more than Jesus. Lord, we've started this entire service by worshiping you. God, that's exactly where we want to end. I pray that you would do something powerful as we read your word. Help us to see who you are in relation to the problems or the trouble or the storm that we might be in in our own lives. And God, we ask that you will show us your mighty power through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, when I first started reading this passage, I questioned, I was asking myself, how, how none of us are going to be probably on a boat shipwrecked or we're going to be on a um, lost at sea voyage, right? Or none of us are probably going to experience that. But there are a lot of relatable aspects um, from this passage that I want to get into. So you'll be able to relate to this for sure. Let's begin at verse number one. Um, Acts chapter 27, verse number one begins with this. He says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. All right, let me stop for just a minute here. There's a lot of information in that one little verse. Um, Here's what he's basically saying. We're introduced to a guy named Julius. That's such a cool name. Anybody named Julius in here? Like, that is such an Italian name all the way. Julius. All right. Anyway, so Julius is uh, introduced. Now, he's a a centurion. A centurion was a commander-in-chief of the Roman army. All right? This was a big deal. So he's been, Paul has been under, he's been placed into the custody of this Roman official, um, this, this soldier. Anytime you see the word cohort in scripture, he's referring to anywhere between 500 and 800 soldiers underneath his command. Like this guy's the big cheese, all right? So Paul and the rest of the prisoners are given into this guy, Julius' hands. It's Julius' job to make sure that Paul and everybody else gets to Italy. My, pe- my people. Okay, so um, my people, Catronio, my last name. All right, moving on. Um, so here we go. So it be- happens in verses 2 through 8 is Luke begins to give us a play-by-play action plan of what happens um, on their journey before they can even really get to Italy. So I've got a map up here that's going to help me uh, kind of unpack verses 2 through 8 kind of in a quick format so we can kind of get to uh, the actual uh, crux of the sermon. So let me get a- give you some background here. So right now, uh, Paul is in Caesarea. He's loading a boat right now in Caesarea, and he's going to be sh- uh, sailing to Sidon. And he's going to spend about a day, well, maybe a little longer than a day, in Sidon. Now, the whole purpose of that trip is just to kind of continue to, on the voyage. The goal is to get up to Myra, because in Myra, that's where there's going to be a larger ship that will actually sail from that port to Italy. So right now, Caesarea, they're not making any trips to, from Caesarea to Italy. There aren't any big enough boats for that in that particular port. So they got to get to Myra, and they spend, it takes them a little while to get to Myra because all of a sudden there's wind that's contrary uh, to their ship. All right? They're trying to have a hard time with great difficulty to get to Myra. They finally get to Myra, and when they're there, um, the, the, uh, Julius decides to find another boat that's big enough to, that's planning to get to Italy. So they switch boats in Myra. And this particular boat was a trading boat. Um, the whole purpose of that boat was to, they were they're actually exchanging um, grain from Egypt to Italy. So they were transporting grain uh, to the town of, or the country of Italy. So they get on this boat, massive boat, heading to, the, to Rome. So on their way, so now they're in Myra, but they decide to leave. And as they begin to head that way, the winds pick up. So it's getting a little bit more intense. Um, and they can't make a straight shot from Myra to Italy. So what they decide to do is, okay, the wind's too strong. Let's go and drop down uh, beneath, uh, underneath Crete, the island of Crete. 
because there at least there's some coverage and we can kind of hunker down for a little bit until the wind kind of subsides. So now we find them in Fairhaven. That's where they're at right now as we pick up in verse number nine. Um, They made the trip to Fairhaven with great difficulty. And uh, here we go. Since much time has passed uh, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them. Now what fast is he talking about? You're probably asking yourself. Well, he's talking about the the day of Pentecost. The Jerusalem uh, day of atonement was once a year, everybody would travel to the nation of, of Israel to have a massive fast that basically is remembering what God did to the nation of Israel as they delivered him out of Egypt. So now that the fast is over, Paul knew as a seasoned traveler, this is not the best time to be traveling a long voyage uh, at any open sea. So listen to what he says in verse 10. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul, as I said, seasoned traveler, knew this was a bad idea. In fact, guys, everybody knew that between mid-September and mid-November, you're never supposed to travel in the ocean like that. That's like hurricane season. Typhoons happen then. And they're wanting to make a trip from Fairhaven all the way to Italy at the worst time to do this. So Paul's saying, bad idea. Don't do it. We're going to end up dead if you, if you try. What do they do? Verse, verse, uh, uh, verse 11. But the centurion, Julius, um, paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, he basically said, Paul, be quiet. Leave it to the professionals. Uh, You're not a professional. You're not a sailor. You just, you just, be quiet. You go back to the bottom of the boat and leave the ship, the the sailing for the big guys, all right? We know what we're doing. You just be quiet. So he basically silences Paul like he's a, like a little kid. I don't care what you have to say. We're going to take the advice of the owners and the, and the actual pilot. Verse 12, it continues. But because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Like they so knew this was a, a crazy long shot if this was ever going to happen. It's like a Hail Mary, right? Not going to happen, but we're going to give it a shot. So somehow we'll get to Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. So you can see where Phoenix is on that little island. Um, and they're over here at Fairhaven. It's only about m- maybe 50 miles away. Shouldn't be a too hard of a trip unless the wind is blowing against you, right? Paul said, bad time. Don't, don't do it. Ignored Paul. And the reason why we're told is because apparently Fairhaven was not a great place to be spending the winter. So we're in Indiana, right? Landlocked. There's like no water here. So I'm from Florida and I need to be by ocean sometimes. Do you anybody get panic attacks, you know, when they're not near water? Like, okay, anyway, I didn't expect that. Okay, so... Uh, I, I grew up near water, so I'm going to try my best to explain uh, how I would illustrate this. So I would say Fairhaven is kind of like an abandoned truck stop, all right, in Indiana. An abandoned truck stop in Indiana, the kind of truck stop that, that when you have to go to the bathroom, they give you a key that's connected to a hubcap truck stop. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there before? Like, that's Fairhaven. Like, middle of nowhere, nothing's there. Nobody wants to spend five seconds in Fairhaven because it's just not. Now, Phoenix Phoenix would be equivalent to like a, a Franklin Township or a Greenwood that's, that has a Super Target and a, and a Starbucks nearby, right? That, that's Phoenix. Everybody wants to get to Phoenix, right? Nobody wants to be in Fairhaven, an abandoned truck stop. So that, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's why they want to get on and they don't want to stay here. But Paul knew this was a bad plan. We should stay here. Even though it's a, a dumpy hotel, right? We got to stay, all right? So he goes in verse 13. I says, let's look what happens. Now, when the south wind blew gently, 
Supposing that they had obtained, some, uh, obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore, because they didn't want to get too far away from the island, otherwise they'd drift out, right? So, but soon, a tempestuous wind. Oh, you got to circle that word tempestuous in your Bible. That is such a cool word. Nobody says that, right? Like, you have a tempestuous attitude right now. Get out of my face, man. Nobody says that, but it's a cool word. Tempestuous. Um, massive, unsuspecting wind called Northeaster. Now, it's not talking about Easter bunnies here. We're talking about a massive typhoon that is threatening the very existence uh, of their lives. So, in fact, the Greek word for um, Northeaster, and listen to this, it's pronounced euoclodon. That sounds like a dinosaur, doesn't it? Like, yeah, it's scary, right? That's what's happening. This is a very scary, tempestuous, don't even have a word for this kind of a storm, And it struck down from the land. It came right on top of them. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. This is is going nowhere fast. Verse 16. Running under the lee of some island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So what was happening is talking about the lifeboat on the ship. So this lifeboat that's on the front of the ship is beginning to take on water and pound against the actual boat. And so they had to secure this thing down because it was going to destroy itself by the wind. So that's what's happening here um, in verse 17. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run, they would run aground on the Sirtis, which was sandbars nearby where they were actually at. It's also known as the graveyard of ships because so many ships got stuck in the sand there. They were afraid of that. They wanted to get away from there. So they lowered their gear, and thus they were driven along. Oh, man. And since they were vi- we were violently storm-tossed, we began the next day to jettison the cargo. <laughs> and then the third day, we even threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. So Luke's including himself here. I even participated in that. I mean, we're doing everything we can to just save our lives here. This is a bad situation going worse. All right? And now look what happens in verse 20, as if we couldn't understand with clarity at this point. Luke leaves no room for doubt of how severe the situation is. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now notice the plurality there. Us and our hope was lost He's including himself. Luke's including himself here. He's including Paul. He's including every single person on this boat. Church, I want you to understand and feel the heaviness of this verse. Put yourself on this boat. Paul thought he was going to be going to Rome. He thought he had it planned out. Everything made sense. And then out of nowhere, a storm that he told was probably going to happen, ended up hitting his ship, and now his dreams are beginning to crumble around him to the point where he literally thought it was never going to happen. This is a, we have to, it's a, it's a lost cause. This is exactly where I believe God has us in this passage for such a time as this. There's no doubt in my mind that some of us are there right now. Some of us feel that we are in a situation, a circumstance You know, we don't know how we're going to pay these bills. We don't know how we're going to take care of our parents who are dying. I don't know how to help them. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to help these people. Or my marriage is on the rocks. I'm getting, it's disintegrating before my eyes. I don't know how to fix this. And I don't know how I'm going to continue to work where I'm working at. They're getting ready to have some serious layoffs. And I don't know. I'm in a bad storm. When you're there, 
and you feel like everything is going to fall apart. All right, look at verse 21. Look what Paul does. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Come on now, who would do the same thing? Like, I can't believe you made this mistake. I told you, all of you, you all heard me, not anyone's exempt. I told you, do not leave Fairhaven. And you didn't listen to me. So now you're in this big fat mess and we're all going to die. Like, that, that's, can you hear it? Like, he's frustrated, he's angry, he's mad, right? That's what you think, but look what happens. In verse 22, how quickly he pivots. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Okay, question. How did he do that? How did he go from being so frustrated and accusing and blaming their, 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 their foolishness for not listening to them to shifting to becoming more encouraging? From accusing to encouraging. How did he do that? Well, let's see what happened. Continue reading. I love seeing you guys look down your Bibles. It's so cool. All right, let's keep going. And it says here, um, verse 22. I'm sorry, verse uh, 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Love that phrase. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Men, for I have, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So what, why, how, is, how is it that Paul was able to pivot from accusing the, these men for making such a foolish mistake to encouraging these men? Well, here it is. And this is the first thing I want you to see. This is the first uh, point, this irrevocable truth about who God is that I want you to see. First, God always, he is always greater than the mistakes that we make. He is always greater than our mistakes. Now think about that. That's why Paul was able to pivot from accusing to encouraging. And the same thing will happen to us. When you understand that the situation you're in right now, whether it was your fault or not, God is in control over the mistake. He's greater than the mistake. Something happens in your heart. You can move from accusing to encouraging. In fact, I would say this, a lot of us in this room right now that are going through a storm are here because of someone else's mistake, someone else's bad decision. Perhaps you might have even warned them. And you'll never forget. You will never forget the day you got that phone call and you heard what this person did and how it was so selfish. It was so foolish and, and I just can't believe they did this and it hurt so bad and I, I should have I listened to them and I should have known that they were going to tell me the truth that this is wrong and they didn't listen to me. You're just, you're just furious about their mistake. You're angry because of now all your whole life since that decision was made has never been the same has never been the same. Maybe it was a, a parent that did something to you. Maybe it was a, a, a relative or a family member or a job or a boss or whatever it was. Somebody did something, a mistake, and now you're paying the consequence for it. Or perhaps you're the person in the room that might have made the mistake. And you would do anything in the world to go back to that moment in time and make a different choice. But you know you can't. So what do you do? 
Here's what you do. You know that God is greater than the mistake. God is greater than the mistake. The mistake that somebody else did that you're suffering for or the mistake that you might have made. Our God is bigger. And because of that, you can be encouraged and you can encourage other people. I love how Paul even said in the verse, remember verse 23? Go back to this phrase. If you don't have it underlined, boy, I'd encourage you to do this. It's such an identity statement, okay? Paul said very, very boldly before everybody, he said, look, an angel stood before me, an angel of the God to whom I belong. I want you to underline that phrase because it's identity. If you are in Christ, you belong to him. You are not hopeless. Hear me. You are not helpless. You are his, and that will never change. It will never change. And let that encourage you when you realize that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything that's going on, God is he's bigger than the mistake that was made or what I made. God is bigger. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that says, you're so foolish. I, you're, you always fail. Every time you pick something up, you fail at it. Every time you try to do something good, you fall apart at it. You're a loser. Just stop. I say that because those are the same thoughts that often come into my head. Don't listen to those lies. That's the same tactic that Satan always uses, but I want you to see God is greater than the mistake so we can be encouraged in that, that God is in control. And uh, I was thinking of a way I could help illustrate this, and I have three kids. I wanna, this is so helpful for me as I think about it. Um, I have three kids, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. My six-year-old is my only son in whom I'm well pleased. Anyway, so um, how to throw it in there, man. Got to get it. So his name is Landon. Um, I told you before, he loves playing with Legos, loves Legos. And so we'll, oftentimes he'll come into the living room and just dump out all of his Legos and we'll be building stuff in the, in the living room. And then Peyton, who's my youngest girl, um, she just wants to be in on the action. She's just a party waiting to happen, right? She just wants to be where everybody else is at. And so sometimes um, she'll go in the living room and start playing with Landon's Legos when he's in there that uh, we had already built something and she's playing with it. Well, guess what she does? She breaks it. She accidentally breaks it. And when that happens, I mean, Landon goes berserk. He goes bananas. I mean, big old eyes, and he becomes angry. And all, me and Mama are in the living are in the uh, kitchen talking, and all of a sudden you hear this yelling match. Like, you broke my Legos. I can't believe you broke my Legos. You, I, get out of here. Just leave me alone. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like World War III just broke out in your living room with two, two kids. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. And it, it's so important for me when that happens for my son, I, I, can't just, I can't just talk to him and say, hey, Landon, stop, calm down, calm down. I literally have to get in his face, eyeball to eyeball, and say, Landon, look at me. I helped you build that. It's going to be okay. I can fix this with you. Give me the broken pieces, and I'll fix it. It's not until I can get him to look at me that he starts, he stops accusing and stops blaming and starts, stops attacking his sister. He's got to see me, and he's got to know that I can fix this. And then he gives me this, the broken pieces, and then I begin to fix it. That's exactly what I want you to see from this text. When you are in that season, perhaps you're the person blaming the other person that's done you wrong. You don't deserve this. You know what? You may be right. You don't deserve it. But it's happened, right? It's happened. And I'm probably a little uncomfortable because perhaps the person that's done this is probably maybe sitting next to you. Understand this. Mistakes are nothing to a big God. God is bigger than that. And he has this on purpose happening in your life because he's doing something big in your life to display his goodness. So trust that. Be encouraged. Give him, give him the broken situation. Lift your eyes to him and watch him fix it. So that's the first 
amazing, irrevocable promise, truth about God in this passage. I want you to see. Let's keep reading, all right? Let's continue reading in verse 27. So after Paul gives this good news to everybody on the boat, we're going to be okay. Verse 27 happens. Now, when, 14, when the 14th night had come. All right, wait, 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 wait. 14 nights on a boat that's going back and forth. If anybody doesn't struggle with seasickness, I challenge you to be on a boat like this. Um, yeah, 14 nights. It was maybe like five nights into the trip, and, and then Paul has the vision or sees the angel and says it's going to be okay. So a long time has passed, nearly almost probably 10 days or so has passed since Paul first told everybody it's going to be okay. And now we're 14 days into this thing, and nothing, guys, nothing has changed. It's only gotten worse. 14th night had come, and as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, so now we're very far away from the island of Crete, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, which means um, about 120 feet to the bottom of the ocean. That's what they discovered. And then a little bit further, they took another sounding and again found it was 15 fathoms, which means about, a ni- about a 90 feet to the bottom of the ocean. So that tells us we're getting close to land here. All right, so, and fearing that they might, that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern, which is the back of the ship, and prayed for day to come. Oh man, they're just, they're, they had to stop the boat because otherwise they're gonna run this, this, this ship on against a rock or something, so at least, let's at least anchor down here. And so here's what happens next. Look what the sailors do. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat, the only lifeboat that remained on, that, on the ship, right? They lowered this boat into the sea under the pretense that, of laying out anchors from the bow, which is the front of the ship. So They've already laid the anchors from the back, so now they're going to go, we're going to go lay anchors in the front of the ship. So we'll be right back, Paul and everybody else. Paul's no dummy. Look what happens. Verse verse 31. Paul said to the centurion, Julius, um, and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, what happened the last time Paul offered his suggestion? Remember that? Shh, be quiet, Paul. Just shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Look at the change that happens here. Not anymore. Verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And I'm not going to sing the song. So that, it's amazing what happens here. Talk about a turn of event, right? So different. So here you've got these, the, the, the soldiers are, are at, he said, stop them. Otherwise, they're going to get escape from the ship. And if they get off the boat, nobody else knows how to drive this thing. So they need to stay on, otherwise we're all going to die here, right? That's, that's what happens. So keep them on the boat. Makes sense. But what amazes me is they didn't even offer a hesitation, not even an argument. Paul, they said that they're just going to layer low the anchors. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Not at all. They listened immediately to Paul, and the, the soldiers, they didn't, even, they didn't even threaten the guys. They didn't put the sword to their neck and say, get back on the ship. What did they do? They cut the strings and let the lifeboat sail away. Like that was their, that was their backup plan. Can you hear the, so, the sailors like, you are a fool. You just cut our only chance of survival away. I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, maybe you, at least maybe you could have escaped, but you cut our only life chance away. So what, did that, what does that mean? They literally cut all backup plans away. Now the only plan they had was God's plan. And that was right on purpose. Right on purpose. Look, at that, look what happens. Um, let me, wind blew my page. All right. 
verse 33. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them, he urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that we have, that you have continued in suspense, which is another word for worry or anxiousness. And without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food uh, for it will give you strength. And remember, not, for not a hair is to perish from the, from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks in the midst of the storm to God in the presence of all who broke it, he broke it and began to eat. Okay, so what's happening here? This is just crazy talk. What is actually happening? Well, apparently, um, you have the, the sailors just got, the, the, the soldiers just cut the ropes off the actual only lifeboat. So now they've got no other plans. And they're all, you can imagine, the soldiers and the sailors are fighting with each other, frustrated about this whole thing. And now Paul says, wait a minute, come here. Everybody get, cl- everybody get close to me. Get close to me. You know, he says, all right, look, let's stop worrying for just a minute and let's just trust the Lord and all these things. It's all going to work out. I mean, everybody thought he was a crazy man, right? Are you kidding me? We're taking on water. Like the only response that I could think in my mind, now mind you, I have a very vivid imagination. So, I mean, I can imagine everybody has buckets. Everybody grab a bucket. Paul, stop talking. You're over here eating bread when the rest of us are grabbing buckets trying to survive here. So what, are you kidding me? You're telling us to, to stop, to slow down? We need to get the water off of the ship so that we can survive. The Bible is very clear. It says that they were scared. They were in suspense. They were anxious. They were afraid. But Paul says, stop worrying. Don't be afraid. Just trust that it's going to work out. So here's the second point I want you to see. The only way that's going to happen is this. If you understand that God that God is always in control of my circumstances. That's the only way you could ever go from worrying, fretting about your circumstance to giving thanks like we see Paul doing in this passage. And it's so intentional, guys. How many times have you read in Scripture where it says we are to give thanks in everything? Well, how do you do that? You have to have your eyes on God. You have to see that God is bigger than the circumstance that you're in. And as a result of that, this calm assurance that God's got, he's got this, it's gonna be okay, is exactly what he got. And the only way to, you had to, he had to get them to slow down from their worry. They're panicking. They've got buckets in their hands. I can only imagine the, the chaos, right? They're trying their best to survive, worrying and fretting. And Paul knew that in order for them to eat, he had to get them to slow down enough so they can actually eat some bread and get strength for the, for the swimming they're gonna get ready to do in just a moment. So here, let me share this with you. I don't know how many, how, how many of you find it difficult to eat when you're moving. Some people are really good at it. Like you can actually eat a meal uh, when you're moving and working and doing different things, maybe raking your leaves in your front yard, you're eating a meal. Don't even know how you do that. Um, but some people are good at that, right? I feel, figured out a long time ago that I'm not good at that. In fact, just I did this last hour. How many of you all um, might have run in the uh, turkey dash, the drumstick dash uh, uh, down in... Um, and, and, and oh, I got one person. Okay, fantastic. All right, the rest of you are probably like, yeah, I'm not doing that on Thanksgiving, right? I'm not. I don't blame you. Don't blame you. No judgment. Um, well, I was tricked into this. Actually, I tricked my small group, some of my small group into it. Um, and we, start, we decided, some of us decided to run this race. But I was shocked because on like mile four or something, they were passing out donut holes. I mean, donut holes on a race. And some people were actually stopping and getting the bag of donut holes, and they were eating them as they were jogging. Big mistake, right? I learned a long time ago that you can't do that. Um, a while back, I was running a, uh, another race, and it was like, I don't know, half marathon, and they gave, they gave out energy bars at like mile 12, thinking that it would recharge you. Yeah, don't do that. 
um, your mouth is dry, you got cotton mouth, and you try to eat an energy bar, at mile 10, you're like choking on it. It gets lodged in your throat, and you're hacking up. I mean, it's just a big mess, all right? So I learned a long time ago that you can't really move very effectively and eat. And that's exactly what we see Paul doing in this passage. He's trying to get them to slow down enough so that they stop fretting and stop worrying and start trusting in God. And it's fascinating to me how it happened. Because look what happened next. After he sat down and began eating in front of them, verse 36 tells us that when they saw this, all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. All the people that were on the boat, all, all these people that were worrying and fretting and stressing somehow stopped worrying and began trusting that it was going to be okay, just like Paul. Let me ask you, how did that happen? Did Paul say something? Was it the words that Paul said? No, no, no. I believe it was all in Paul, what Paul was doing. Paul wouldn't have a bucket in his hand. Paul wasn't fretting. Paul was sitting down and trusting that it was all going to be okay. In fact, he was giving thanks to God in the midst of the storm. Sometimes the people, when they see how you respond in your storm, whether it was your mistake or somebody else's mistake, when they see how you respond with thankfulness, the only way you could even do that is if you're keeping your eyes on God, believing that he's bigger than the circumstance. But when they see that, it encourages people around you. And I believe that's exactly what we find happening in this passage today. So Paul encouraged. In fact, it was such, a, it was such an unusual miracle that occurred. Verse 37, Luke leaves out no description here. He says, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. 276 people went from worrying to trusting. You know, I've said it before, and I think it's appropriate to say it again. You cannot have a heart of thankfulness and an anxious heart at the same time. You ever notice that? It's impossible. You can't be thankful and anxious at the same time. So that being the case, in fact, you can say it this way. As light is to darkness, so thankfulness is to anxiety. So the people in the room right now that are in the storm and you notice this pattern, this habitual pattern of anxiousness and worry and, and, and even depression because of what you're going through and it comes in waves. I'm not diminishing one bit that that's a real struggle for a lot of people in this room. So much to the point where perhaps maybe you even thought, maybe it's just better if you just end your life right now altogether. And not even consider worth living anymore. Because no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, it only gets worse. Perhaps you've had those thoughts. And I want to I encourage you with this. Just understand quickly that because your circumstance, you are in an opportunity to see God do the greatest work in your life. God is here with you. He's here. In the passage, he's there. It's obvious. He's clearly saying, hey, look, Paul says, I can thank God in my circumstance. My gratitude to God forces the anxiousness and the depression and the worry out of my heart if I just keep my eyes fixed on God and who he is. He is greater than my circumstance. And because he's greater, I can thank him. And anxiety will flee from my heart, just like darkness flees from the light. That's what I want you to see. Paul is very careful to make sure he gives thanks. And because of that, all of these other people were encouraged they knew that there's something to this Paul guy, something special. God's doing something. So, in fact, you can even prove it because look what they did in verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. You know what that means? They ate enough to fill their bellies, and they said, okay, 
There's something to this God that Paul is following. We don't need to hold on to any more food here. We can ditch the rest of the food because I, we believe that God's gonna help somehow deliver us from the situation. This Paul, this Paul's God, it must be a real God. They're ditching the food. That's what's happening here. Now, look what happened in verse 39. It got a little bit more tricky, more frustrating. Verse 39 says, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders and then hoisted uh, the foresails to the, wi- to the wind and made for the beach. Uh, their whole, this, is the, this is it. We're going to give it our best shot here. Let's get, to the, let's get to the land. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground and, sh- and, and the bow uh, struck and remained up, uh, or, or sorry, uh, remained immovable and the stern was being broken by the surf. So the stern is the back. So the, the front of the ship gets stuck, it hits the reef, now the ship is stuck, and now the, the massive waves are pounding against the back of the ship, and the ship is beginning to disintegrate. So crazy. Like they thought they could make it to the land, and it's actually going backwards. Now it looks like it's going to be even worse. Look what happened in verse 32, 42. So as a result of this, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. This is, makes sense because according to Roman law, any prisoner that were to escape under your guardianship, you would have to face the same penalty as that prisoner would. So like, we're not gonna, we're gonna kill these guys. We're not gonna take the risk of that. They might get away and escape. I'm not gonna die for these guys. That's Roman law. But look what happened. In verse 43, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, interesting, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. He kept them from carrying out the plan to kill the soldiers. What just happened here? Here's what happened. I want you to see. This is the, this is the irrevocable truth about who God is. God's plans are always greater than man's plans. I just want you to see that in this passage. They planned to kill the prisoners. But God's plan was to get Paul to Rome, and nothing is going to stand in God's way. No man's plans, no strategy, nothing can keep God. In fact, even if it means we have to break the Roman law, I mean, this is a captain in command, and he's telling the soldiers to break Roman law. Stop. You need to listen to me. We're going to spare these prisoners' lives, and you can trust me. It's going to be okay. Like breaking the law. Now, How did that happen? God's plans overpowered man's plans. Some of us in here are perhaps, um, and by the way, it should should be noted here. First, the danger was the storm, right? The whole chapter has been about the storm that they're in. This storm's destroying their lives, and it's going to wreck their future, and all that. The storm was the danger, but now the storm is kind of coming, we're getting through the storm, and now the danger shifts to an individual person or a group of people. Sometimes the danger in your life is people. Think about that. What I don't see Paul doing is I don't see Paul retaliating. I don't see Paul making, he's not punching the soldier in the nose. Not at all. I just see Paul just standing there. He's waiting because he believes that God's going to get him to Rome. And so Centurion steps in and saves, saves Paul's life and the rest of the, the, rest of the um, prisoners' lives. And I just want to point out, people perhaps in your life may try to intentionally hurt you or hurt your family, or hurt your career, hurt your education. People may have plans to take you down. 
I can remember when I first got saved. I was a brand new believer. I got saved from a, a really, really rough background. I was in a lot of gang. I was in a gang and I was selling drugs. It's the short end of the story. Um, and when I got saved, I didn't just all of a sudden, not everybody knew the announcement that Joe became a believer. Um, that didn't happen in my neighborhood. So I had a lot of enemies as a result of my gang history. And all the, the, my enemies didn't know that I was no longer rolling with Crip, the, the gang I was in. So I, had to, I remember distinctly getting on a bus heading to school because I got expelled from my local high school for the gang violence that I was involved in. And when I got on the bus, guess who was on the bus? The worst enemy I had ever had was on that bus. And when he saw me, he went bananas. He went ballistic. He was just telling everybody how much he was going to kill me. He was going to wait till I get off this bus, and you can just imagine the scene. And I remember being a baby Christian, brand new believer, and I just asked God, God, I don't know what to do, but I pray that you will please help me. I know that he's planning to jump me as soon as I get off this bus. Please do something. And guess what happened? The bus driver heard him make a, a, a fuss of this whole thing, and she literally pulled the bus off to the side of the road and made him get off of the bus so that I would not get jumped. Now, who does that? She broke the law. You can't just do that. She, she just pulled over the bus. That's the point. I just, here's what I want you to see. It doesn't matter whose plans, uh, they ha- who has a plan against you or your plan to ruin your life. or whatever. God's controlling your destiny. He's controlling your destiny. He's the one in control of the storm and of the people, and his plans are always greater than your plans or their plans. I say your plans because sometimes we've got to figure it out, right? Oh, we're going to move into this house, and we're going to, we're going to get this career, right? We're going, to, we're going to have this many kids in a picket fence. That never happens, right? Who does that? That never happens. Or better yet, you think you have it all planned, and God, God's plans always outweigh your plans. I just want you to see this because what happens is we need to wait on God and not get ahead of him. So that's what happens in Paul's story here. Um, Paul didn't try to defend himself. God did that. Now, let's finish this. I want you to see what happens in verse 44. And the rest, so here's the, they're all jumping overboard, right? They're trying to get to land. Um, you know, basically, the soldiers spared the lives of the prisoners, and some of the prisoners couldn't swim. So he told them, hey, look, those of you who can't swim, just jump on the planks from the, that are broken up pieces from the ship. Just jump on those planks and just try to, you know, let them, you know, carry you over to the land. So, the end of the verse, so it was that all were brought safely to land. Do me a favor, underline that word brought in your Bible. The Greek word for brought is conveying a beautiful picture. It actually conveys the idea of somebody is holding you in the palm of their hand. They're carrying you from one place to the next. And Paul's doing that very intentionally. He chose to use that word to describe what he's saying here is it's not just the boat that got you to this land. God was the one who was controlling the boat the whole time. As you were in the whole mess you thought you were in, it was a hopeless situation. God was the one who had the boat in his hand. He's the one who brought you safely to this land. It's what he's emphasizing here. So here's the third point I want you to see from this passage about who God is. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises so you can, you can expectantly trust him. Say, well, I don't see anything about here is promises. Well, yeah, you do, because in verse 24, Paul made the promise to Paul. He's going to make sure that everybody gets to land. Everybody's going to be spared, but the boat won't be. Just like God promised would happen, it happened. 
So you, can, you too can expectantly trust that God's promises are going to be right on point. Now you might be thinking here, yeah, Joe, it's so cool that you say that. I, I think that's so neat. But I'm in this situation right now. And uh, they, that's, they had an angel come visit them, right? An angel came and visited Paul. Joe, last time I checked, I didn't have an angel come visit me. I'm in my prayer closet and nothing's happening here. No angel visits. You know, that's absolutely right. You may not have an angel visit, but here's what you do have. You have something better than an angel visit. You've got every promise that God ever made for you is in the volume of a book, and you're holding it in your hands. Like, the promises of God are better than a one-time angel visit because God's promises you can repeat and look back at, remind yourself, this is what God said. This is the promise that God said. God, you said you will carry me. You said you'll defend me. You said you'll help me. You'll provide for me. You'll, you'll protect me. All of those promises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, God gave you and you're holding it in your hand. You don't need an angel visit. You know God, if you know what God's promises is, you can trust that God will expectantly, you can expect that God, will tr- that God will do something for you to help you in your situation. So we started out by asking the question, is your fear greater than your, your faith? So far we've seen what in, in this situation that Paul, um, we noticed that God is always greater than mistakes. Notice I'm using the word always, church. God is always greater than our circumstances. He's controlling our destiny. And God is always greater than man's plans, no matter what they may attempt to do to us. Here's the point. When you know these things are true, your faith will be greater than your fear. Because you know how big your God is. And that's the point of this this passage. In fact, here's the, the whole sermon in a sentence. God uses hopeless situations to display his greater power to a watching world. 276 people were on this boat, and every single one of them saw directly that God, the God of Paul really is true. He did it. He did it just like he promised he was going to do it. And that's exactly the point of this entire text. God wants to use our hopeless situations. The thing that you figured in your life is just impossible God can use that, and he's going to use that in your life to display his greater power to the people who are watching you.